Tonight we have a few minutes to continue to reflect on the events of the Passion Week. And as uh, Steve mentioned, as we've been looking at the seven deadly sins over the last uh, few weeks during Lent, we'll finish tonight with the sin of sloth. I think this has been an interesting series. I think I've learned a lot. And I think it's uh, partly because I see the wisdom of the church fathers in different parts of, of Christianity, different traditions, different eras, there was this idea that, that these particular sins were somehow fundamental and connected to a lot of other kinds of sins and maybe more subtle, some of them, like sloth, but I think important and interesting. And as, even as I've been working on the sermon this week, I've seen lots of connections between, between all of them together as we've seen, as they're all windows into the human heart that we are indeed twisted and broken by sin and that we're desperately in need of redemption. Well, sloth isn't probably a common word in your vocabulary. What is it? Well, of course, maybe we think of the medium-sized mammals that are of the order Pelosa and the suborder Folivora. They exist in two different varieties, two-toed and three-toed. There are six different species. They reside in Central and South America. They tend to hang out in trees and eat leaves all day. They come down to the ground about once a week. Their top speeds are about six feet per minute. And of course, they got their name sloth because they move slowly. Is this the same thing that we're talking about? Is this the sin of sloth being something like slow moving? And how so exactly? Well, as I mentioned a few weeks ago on greed, when, when coming up with these lists of, of these sort of deadly sins or whatever and they've become known in church history, one of the first to make such a list was a monk. His name was Evagrius Pontus. He was in the 4th century, and he didn't call this one sloth. He used a word, he wrote in Greek, and he used a word that means something like between the range of apathy, indifference, and sadness. It's a word that's not found in the Greek New Testament, so we don't have from Jesus' lips or Paul or, or anyone else saying, you know, that this sloth, what, what we call sloth, that this word is a sin. But we have the concept, of course, and the church fathers picked up on that, and we'll look at it, and it's, and it's an important one, and we'll look at it together. Our text is from the night that we celebrate tonight from the night of the Passover, after the meal, as Jesus and his disciples went to the Mount of Olives. I'll read the version that's in Luke 22. If you want to turn there, it's on page 747 in the Pew Bibles. Luke 22, starting in verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, "'Pray that you will not fall into temptation.'" He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, 
was leading them. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather on this night. On one hand, it's a very ordinary Thursday, and on another hand, we know that this is not an ordinary Thursday. This is an important day in our history, in the life of the church. This is an important week preparing us for Easter, that we recognize the events of of this night so many years ago, and that we know that you will meet with us and speak to us now as as we reflect on your word. So we ask you to do that. We pray that you would teach through, uh, through me to your people, all of us together, that you would speak, that we would listen, and that we would uh, experience uh, renewal and joy and change as a result, uh, even more of drawing closer to you. Bless this time, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The scene in the Garden of Gethsemane is described, by, is described, of course, by Matthew and Mark also. Jesus encourages the di- disciples to pray so they won't fall into temptation. And then he goes a short distance beyond them to pray by himself. Matthew and Mark give us the additional detail that, that as we read in Luke, that wasn't there. was this idea that, that those evangelists tell us that Jesus came back and found them sleeping. He woke them up and encouraged them to pray, and then went away, came back, and found them sleeping that this happened three different times. Luke doesn't emphasize that, but what struck me in reading the three and and connecting to our sermon tonight is that in verse 45, in Luke's account, it says, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. The other disciples don't mention sorrow. They don't mention sadness. They just mention that they were tired. Luke tells us that their exhaustion, their sleepiness, that this sense uh, was connected with sorrow, was connected with sadness, that the disciples must have known, sensed somehow, uh, heard from Jesus that heartbreaking things were afoot on this night. The sadness had become something oppressive or overwhelming to them. And while Jesus called them to fight against that temptation in order to pray with him, They give in to their desire to sleep instead. And I think that, for us, is a picture of sloth. It begins to show us what sloth is like. It's not just about being slow-moving, of course. Sloth is a response, particularly to God, of something like giving up, something like not caring very much, or a variety of kind of basic indifference. So sloth goes beyond laziness in that way, though, of course, the two overlap. I read this week that the opposite of laziness is hard work. The opposite of sloth is joy. Sloth is a joylessness. It's an apathy towards God and towards life and God's world. It involves refusing the gifts and the limits and the beauty of each day. Refusing the gifts and the limits and the beauty of each day. Sloth is opting out, kind of giving up. It involves a low-level kind of sadness or unhappiness that's, that's connected to it to one degree or another. It's the path of least resistance. The motto of the slothful person is, whatever, right? I don't really care that much. It describes a, a, an existence, a life 
on autopilot, a life of coasting, a life lacking desire and joy. Thomas Aquinas in the medieval period, as he was teaching on these sins, taught that part of the sin pattern of the slothful person is that they don't keep the Sabbath. And that's interesting because we would think the opposite, right? They keep the Sabbath and they make it like every day, right? That they rest too much. But he said they don't rest in God. They try to find rest elsewhere, but it doesn't really come to them. And I think this kind of makes sense to us, right? If you've got the person who is a couch potato, who sits on the couch the whole time, doesn't do much, do they feel well-rested? Do they feel energetic? Does the person who lays around a lot, do they yawn less than the next person who doesn't lay around so much? I don't think so, right? They feel lethargic partly because they are lethargic. They act lethargic. And so Aquinas is teaching that a slothful person is opting out of the God-given rhythms of the world, which involve patterns of work and rest, and work and rest. And so the idea of the Sabbath given to man that he could rest, that he and she could rest uh, on the model of of God and the creation of the world is this idea that, that there's a rhythm to life. And someone who struggles with this idea of sloth is someone who doesn't find rest in the rhythm that God has made. They try to find rest in things that don't give this kind of rest. Just one quick word of caution as we, as we keep going. It sounds maybe, as I describe sloth, it sounds like depression. And, of course, depression is, is something, I think, different or, you know, maybe related, but, but they're not the same thing. Depression, of course, can be produced by a variety of physiological and psychological factors. There are often medical explanations for why certain people tend towards depression and melancholy. Sometimes there are personality factors. Sometimes there are environmental factors. I, don't, I just don't want to suggest that depression is the sin of sloth because they're not necessarily the same things. And people can be depressed, and it's not a sinful thing. And I just, of course, want to make that clear as we continue. When we describe sloth, we're describing something um, a little bit different. As we look at our passage, we would, and again, of course, it'd be hard pre- we'd be hard-pressed to put all of this on the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? I'm not suggesting they were slothful people. We don't have a lot of uh, characterization of them living this kind of lifestyle elsewhere in the Gospels, right? We don't see a lot of other evidence, but I'm suggesting that they're providing this window into the heart in the midst of something intense, in the midst of a crisis. They didn't resist the temptation. They didn't keep praying. They gave into their sadness and their fleshly desire to sleep. Now, of course, we know what it is to be like the disciples, And so I don't want to be too hard on them. I have a hard time keeping my eyes open in the late afternoon and sometimes at other points during the day, right? We know the need for that second cup of coffee. We know the embarrassment of trying and failing to remain alert or like, you know, doing that thing when you kind of jerk awake in the midst of a lecture or a work meeting. Probably not a sermon, of course, but (laughs) other things like that. 
it's hard to resist that desire for sleep. We know what it feels like, of course. I don't, so I don't want to be too hard on the disciples. But, but we see here that there's something of a spiritual principle. And that's where I really want us to focus. It's a, it's a principle about priorities and about rest and about work and about thankfulness and about calling. All of those things kind of wrapped up into one. If sloth is the opposite of joy, then sloth is that sin of shirking or sort of shrinking back from who God is calling us to be and what God is calling us to do. If God offers us a life of joy and fulfillment in following him, though of course not without trials, if God holds out to us the blessings of this life and the life to come as we walk with him, as God invites us to the adventure and the challenge of trusting him with our very lives, with our talents, with our time, with our experiences, with our relationships, with our good things, with our hard things, with our sorrow and our happiness, with beauty and brokenness, if God is inviting us, all of it, to be lived under his sovereign rule, to see that everything comes from his hand, if God is giving us an invitation to joy, sloth is that part of us that says, no, I'm okay. I'm going to kind of opt out of some of that stuff. I'm going to give myself to the distractions of this world and to its charms. I don't have the energy to invest in all of those other things. Right? So sloth doesn't win the spectacular sin award. It's not explosive. It's not the train wreck. You know, anger and lust and greed can have these sort of dramatic um, endings. Sloth is the slow burn into indifference and apathy and sadness. And so in that way, as I've been reflecting on it this week, it's, it's, it's kind of more dangerous. It's not the pursuit of inordinate and inappropriate desires. It's a lack of desire at all. Most devastatingly, right, a lack of desire for God. A lack of desire for the things that God cares about. A lack of desire that we live in God's world and that it's worth living. So it's a path that's kind of more subtle and in a way more offensive as a beloved child of God living in God's world to sort of just disengage in God's best for our lives. Right? If we could think of it another way, sloth is burying the talent. Sloth is not bringing the extra oil to be prepared for when the bridegroom arrives. Sloth is the seed scattered among the thorns, the life choked out of it. Sloth is the complaining children sitting at the marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance, right? As Jesus said in Matthew 7. Sloth is not caring enough to care about what's really important. And that's where sloth, it's home for me. It can look in a way like laziness, but busy people can be very slothful too, right? Flitting about without a godly purpose, 
busy on ourselves, busy with our hobbies and distractions and frivolities, busy for the sake of busy. That describes much of our cultural pursuit in 21st century America, doesn't it? Sloth can't sort out meaning and purpose in God's economy. It's the lack of trying. And there's sadness, right? There's this underlying sadness in life lived without meaning and purpose. So when Jesus tells his disciples, watch and pray so that you won't be tempted, he was inviting them to participate with him in the path of the cross, in obedience to the the Father. In the midst of his agony and earnest prayer, the disciples had a sweet opportunity to enter in with him, to intercede with him, to intercede for him, to intercede for themselves, to pray in this crisis. And in that sense, they missed it. And they missed it three times. It's easy for us to miss it too, isn't it? Sloth is this description of missing out on what God has for us. And perhaps for some of us, at least, it's the problem isn't that, is, is that we're not really trained to sort it out and live with purpose. We have competing desires that crowd in, and they struggle to make, uh, it, we struggle to make our priorities. We struggle to live by clear direction. On the one hand, it's a struggle to, to, to figure out how to not be slothful and to live in a way that, that connects with God's purpose for us and the meaning that he's given to our lives. But on the other hand, we also know the limits of ourselves too, right? We know what it feels like to be at the end of ourselves, to not have any more strength. Perhaps we feel that way almost constantly. We're too busy. We're too rushed. We're too stressed. We're too tired. Maybe this little sermon about sloth makes you feel even more, like there's one more thing that you need to do to be a good Christian or something. I wasn't even worried about being slothful before I got here tonight, right? (laughs) Thanks a lot. But I have good news for you and for me. It's not my news, it's the gospel. Jesus knew the limitations and the weaknesses of his disciples. He knew that they were at the end of their rope that night. He was too, overwhelmed with sorrow. He invited them to participate with him in something big on the way to the cross, interceding with him before the Father. And they missed it. You know what? Jesus still loved them. Jesus still loved them. And he invited them to follow him again and again. And many times, he invited them to come closer and to come back to him. And these same weak ones, who couldn't even stay awake, changed the world with the news of a forgiving Savior. And so they could say, we have one who can sympathize with our weakness and our humanity. We have one who can give strength to the broken and the crushed. We have one who forgives and forgets the sins and the sloth of his people. 
we have one who promises eternal life and who calls us to experience a foretaste of that joy that will be forever that we can experience even today. These disciples said, this one is on our side. This one gave up his life for us. And so as we prepare to continue in worship and as we think about coming to the Lord's table tonight, we find this same Savior, this same one who invites us. He knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. He knows how much we feel broken and crushed. He knows our sloth and how much we shirk back. And he forgives. He forgets. And he loves us anyway. And he came to rescue us from all of those things of sin and brokenness and also from sloth and a purposeless existence, didn't he? He went to the cross so that we could experience the joy of life in a relationship with him forever. And so on this night, tinged with the sadness of the cross, we also see the hope of the gospel We confess our sins. We believe that God indeed has been reconciled to us. That Jesus came and loved us and invites us again, even if we've been asleep, to wake up and to be with him in the joy that he offers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we thank you that we can reflect on your graciousness to us. Jesus, we thank you that we can reflect on this idea that, that even though we uh, have struggled to stay awake, that you are calling us and that you love us and that even that, too, is covered by your blood, as it was for the disciples, so it may be in our lives, physically and spiritually. Lord, that you would continue to wake us up from a purposeless existence, from life on autopilot, from sloth, and that you would give us even clear direction as a church and as individuals of, of what it is to walk with you more closely and to follow you and, and, to, uh, and to be a part of your kingdom, advancing it and living a life that has meaning and purpose. Father, we, th- we thank you for uh, that good news that we have tonight. Now, as we continue to worship, as we uh, soon come to the table, we pray you would continue to be with us and, and give us uh, your, your, your thoughts. Help us to worship you. Help us to uh, confess our sins and find the healing and the forgiveness that you so freely offer, that you died to give us. Jesus, we thank you for that. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.